Uh, good afternoon, Hallows Church. Again, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of, privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures today. So if you could, grab your Bibles, turn them open to Exodus chapter 16, to the passage our friend Michelle read for us a moment ago, Exodus chapter 16. If you're not familiar with the Bible, don't sweat it. Every Bible comes with a table of contents. You can look at the front of your Bible and you'll find a table of contents there to find your way through this book. And uh, when you get into the book of Exodus, uh, you're looking for chapter 16 and hang out in verse 1. That's what we'll be diving into here in a few moments. We're continuing our our summer series today uh, titled Drawing Near. We're taking the summer to explore different aspects and attributes of who God is and what God is like. And we've covered quite, we've covered quite some, a lot of really good ground over the course of the past few weeks. We've, we've, looked at how, we've looked at the revelation of God. That is, God opens himself up to us in relationships. We, we talked about the beauty of God, that we want to become a, a type of people and a type of church that worships God for who he is because we find him beautiful and attractive. We talked about the grace of God, which oftentimes works in, in counterintuitive ways, this scandalous grace, oftentimes doing things that leave us scratching our head, wondering how in the world could God be so good to people like us. And we've talked about the pursuit of God and how God relentlessly pursues his people in this world. We've explored the providence of God and the love of God. And then last week we dove into the the theme of the judgment of God. And one of my favorite things about this series is that different artists throughout all three of our expressions are contributing art pieces in response to different aspects and attributes. And those pieces are hanging on the wall in the back. And if you haven't spent time just looking at their artwork, I encourage you to do so as it can bring, uh, so it can enrich your worship of God as you meditate upon who he is in light of this series. Today, our art piece was given to us by a guy by the name of Jared Murray, who's one of, member of our West Seattle expression. And and it's titled The Sufficiency of God. The Sufficiency of God, which is the aspect and the attribute of who God is that we're going to dive into here in Exodus chapter 16. The Sufficiency of God is our way of saying God is enough, that God is all we need, that he is sufficient for us through thick and thin, in good times and in bad. One of the reasons why I like this painting is because of the contrast of colors where you have bright colors and you have dark colors and they stand in contrast of each other and you know as well as I do as you journey through a world that's like ours you your experience is that you know that life is a journey of contrast that you journey through bright seasons and dark seasons good seasons and bad seasons terrific seasons and tough seasons and what we're going to see when we explore the sufficiency of God is that God is enough for us no matter where we are in this world, no matter when we are in this world. Our God is sufficient. Our God is enough for us. And so this is what we're diving into, the sufficiency of God. And when we learn to to place our faith in God's sufficiency, when we begin to trust that God is enough for us through thick and thin, the fruit of that in your soul, the fruit of that in your heart will be contentment. It will be stability. It will be substance of character that will be held together no matter what is going on around you. So that's what we're going after. The fruit of faith in the sufficiency of God is called contentment. Back in the 16th century, there was a guy by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs who once described contentment as a rare jewel. It's a rare commodity in a world like ours. And if that was the case back in the 16th century, it is certainly the case today. As we live in a culture surrounded by uh, this thought process and this approach to life that says that, that my contentment, my stability, my joy is tethered entirely to 
external circumstances or what situations I may find, uh, we may find ourselves in. And there's a sense in which that's a little bit true. I mean, you know as well as I do that you can find a satisfying sense of serenity when everything in your life is going well. When in your job, you're able to occupy, uh, operate in light of your passions and your values and your strengths and your talents, there's some satisfaction and some stability that that can bring your life. Or maybe the moms and dads in our midst, you know the feeling when your kids are finally sleeping through the night. And that, that can be quite satisfying and stabilizing to the soul. Or maybe your bank account is, is a source where it can support your preferred lifestyle and in those good moments, it seems as though there's no apparent reason to grumble or complain and contentment seems to be present in our souls. But again, life is a journey of contrasts. And things that may be going well in one moment very well may not be in the next. And we want to consider how the sufficiency of God is capable of carrying us through each one of those seasons and each one of those uh, moments in life. The Apostle Paul understood this quite well in Philippians chapter 4. It's what he's getting after when he's dealing with how his heart responded to the contrasts of life, to the good times and the bad. Listen to what he says again in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content. I've learned to be stable. I've learned to be, learned to be spiritually composed in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that was one of my favorite verses growing up, and I played baseball, and I'd always take Philippians 4, 14, and I would write it into the bill of my cap. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And my thought process as a kid, I thought that that meant whenever I would step into the batter's box that each time I'd be able to hit a home run. But the reality of that verse is that that verse means that Christ is capable of holding me together even when I strike out. That's what it means to be able to do all things through him who strengthens us. It means you can find stability. You can find contentment regardless of where you are or when you are in this world. Jeremiah Burroughs would go on to define contentment this way, and I love his definition. He says that contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly care in every situation. This type of contentment, this type of soul stability can be learned. And I believe one of the ways God is at work in each and every one of our lives right now is to produce that. That God is at work in all of our circumstances to draw our faith towards his sufficiency. That we might learn that he's enough for us as we journey through the world that is en route to the world that is to come. I think this is one of the major dynamics in the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with the story of this, of this book, this book essentially tells the story of the people of Israel and how the people of Israel were redeemed from Egypt and they were led through the wilderness for about 40 years, brought into the promised land. And, and it's a remarkable story that begins in slavery but ends in glory. I think that's why I love the book of Exodus so much because that's the story of the Christian life. If you're a follower of Jesus right now, you know that your life started in slavery. You were enslaved to sin and Satan and death. 
But by God's grace towards you and the redemption that has taken root in your life, he's brought you out of that and he's now leading you towards glory. So that the end for every follower of Jesus, the end of the gospel in all of our lives is to bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. It's to lead us into glory. But we're not there yet, are we? We're moving from bondage to glory and we're wandering through the world that is. And this is precisely where Israel finds themselves at this point in the story. God has redeemed them out of Egypt and he doesn't just drop them immediately into the promised land. Instead, he says, okay, I want to lead my people in a direction that will be good for them. They might not like it, but it will be good for them. I'm gonna lead them through the wilderness because there is some work I want to do in their hearts. There's some work I want to do in their lives. And so when you come to faith in Jesus and you become a a Christian and you begin to walk by faith through this world, you're going to find your story mirroring the Exodus story in many ways. And you're going to find yourself journeying through the wilderness of this world, so to speak. And the purpose in it is for God to do something in your heart so that you might become the man or the woman that God would have you be. And so God is teaching his people contentment. He's teaching his people about his sufficiency in the wilderness. Now, notice how chapter 15 ends. Right before you step into chapter 16, this is what we read about the people of Israel. It says, then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the water. In other words, they found themselves in a prosperous place. Life was good for them in Elam, but it's kind of so it might surprise you that God doesn't leave them there. He doesn't leave them in Elam, although they're enjoying refreshment, God doesn't let them stay. You see, God knows that there are things lurking within their hearts that extended stays in Elam just can't bring out. And so in order to kind of kick up the sin that has gone dormant in their souls. He's taken them out of prosperity and he's moving them into the wilderness, which might be described as a place of adversity. And he brings them into an, in an adverse direction. Why? Because he loves his people too much to allow sin to remain dormant in their hearts. And oftentimes, as you walk with God through this world, there are seasons and stretches when he will lead you out of prosperity and into adversity. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. And he wants that adversity to kick up things in your heart that he wants eradicated. Things that he wants to change and transform. There's a guy by the name of Jerry Bridges who wrote a book called Disciplines of Grace. I would encourage you to read it if you ever come across it. There's a chapter in that book called The Discipline of Adversity. And listen to what he says about adversity. He says, adversity is not a discipline that we undertake ourselves. In other words, we don't wake up in the morning and say, I want, okay, life has been too good for me lately. I need something hard, so I'm gonna leave the comfortable, comfortable place and go to the hard place. That's not our decision. That's not our choice. Instead, we are told that, that adversity is used by God as a means of spiritual growth. As Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, verse 10 says, God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. He disciplines us. He refines us. He transforms us. And adversity is one of his most effective tools to make us more like Jesus. So you're going to see this adversity illustrated in the narrative here in Exodus chapter 16 because God 
plucks the people of Israel up out of Edom, Elam, up out of the place of prosperity, and he leads them into the wilderness. And it doesn't take long for Israel to step into the wilderness before some nasty stuff starts coming out of their hearts. It doesn't take very long for them to begin grumbling and complaining against God, not trusting that God is sufficient for them and that he will be good to them all the time. They're not believing this, and they have, they have a lot a lot to learn. So God brings them into the wilderness for this dynamic. Now, when you hear that word wilderness, again, don't think wilderness like you see here in the Pacific Northwest. We're not thinking lush forests that's full of resources. You know, you could go to the wilderness out here in the Pacific Northwest, and you could survive off nature's resources for a long time. But what Israel's experiencing in this moment isn't that. They're walking through what may be more compared to a desert. And a desert is a place where resources don't last, right? A desert is a place where things come and go, where resources do not last very long. One of my favorite bands growing up out of the 90s uh, was a band called Counting Crows. And they kind of exploded onto the scenes into the early 90s. They started putting out some incredible songs and albums. Their third album, which was made after they kind of made it. They made it big in this world. They achieved all of their goals. They, they were on top of the world. And, and they come out with a third album. And they titled that album, This Desert Life. And it was their way of saying, look, you know, we've made it, we've reached our dreams, we've reached our goals, but there's something lacking. This fame, this fortune, the the pleasures that they were enjoying in this world just seemed to be leaving them uh, dry, leaving them desolate. And so they came out with that third album to kind of express their hearts wrestle with those realities in this world, saying this life in this world is like walking through a desert. Because the resources of this world will dry up and they will wither away. And so if we're not careful, we're going to place our faith in the wrong place. And if we place our faith in the wrong place, when those things dry up and wither away, we will too. But the good news about how God works in our lives is he doesn't want that to happen. So he's at work in our lives, even in the midst of adversity and struggle in this world, so that our faith may be placed in the right location, that our faith may be placed in his sufficiency. And from there, we can find some stability. Some there, from there, we can find a sense of soul satisfaction. But notice Israel has been brought into this desert life. They are walking through the wilderness and they begin to grumble. But look at the nature of their grumbling in verse 3. It says, the Israelites said to them, that is Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted, They begin to grumble and complain, and essentially in verse 3, what they start doing is they actually begin to romanticize their former masters. They're they're looking at their life in the wilderness, and they're saying, okay, God led me into this situation, and they're looking back on their life in Egypt with a sense of distortion. They've become delusional in their thinking because they're grumbling and they're complaining. The adversity they were facing is twisting things in their minds, twisting things in their perspective. So much so that they begin to romanticize what life was like in Egypt. Now for sure, when they lived in Egypt, they were well fed. They were fed, they had plenty of water to drink, but it wasn't because Pharaoh loved them. Pharaoh had to feed them and keep them uh, watered because they were Egypt's slaves they had work to do and so in order to work long hours they needed to be well fed and taken care of and so yes Pharaoh fed them in Egypt but he fed them in Egypt not for their good not for um, not for the people of Israel's good but for the welfare of him and his his kingdom there in Egypt 
And so what you find here is this discontentment swelling up out of them, this grumbling and complaining as they're becoming delusional in our thinking, saying life for us was far better then than it is now. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever asked that question as a follower of Jesus? Have you ever thought, you know, I gave my life to Jesus and, and after doing that, life didn't get much easier for me. And in some ways, life got harder. I lost some friends. I wasn't able to cut, I didn't feel good about cutting corners at work to be able to get ahead. Uh, my conscience began to bother me when, when I was faced with different decisions on a daily basis. And you kind of find yourself struggling as a follower of Jesus. And, and perhaps as a result, you start grumbling and complaining, wondering, well, I think life was better for me before Jesus. It certainly was easier. I wasn't worried about my conscience. I wasn't worried about all the things that I'm worried about now. We have a tendency to do this when we begin to grumble and complain and we romanticize our former lives, we romanticize our former masters, and we begin to think things like, well, the greedy life, or the promiscuous life, or the lazy life, or the dishonest life, or the independent life, the irresponsible life, the faithless life, all of those lives that would be more satisfying to us than the redeemed life. And if you've ever thought that, it's because you're you're not handling the wilderness very well. You're not seeing God's purpose in the midst of the adversity you are facing. And there's an important principle for here for us to consider. You know, when you think about Israel's story, God got Israel out of Egypt in an instant. They walked across the Red Sea, boom, they were redeemed. But what you're gonna find in Israel's story that it takes 40 years plus for God to get Egypt out of Israel that there was work he wanted to do in them and he used his adversity to kick that stuff up. There was an old school guy by the name of Clement of Rome who said this. He said, after the Red Sea crossing, Moses, by the command of God, whose providence is over all, led out the people of the Hebrews into the wilderness that he might root out the evils which had clung to them by a long continued familiarity with the customs of the Egyptians. You might be surprised, you might be a young Christian in this room and you're kind of surprised that you're still tempted by some of the things you were previously tempted by. And you're wondering why that is and perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm a Christian now, I shouldn't, I shouldn't struggle with those types of things. Let me remind you that you have a, a long familiarity with the customs of this world. And yes, your redemption happens in an instant, but your refinement will take place over the course of a lifetime. And so as you find yourself in the midst of adversity and struggle and strife, don't, don't become deceived in your thinking and start romanticizing your former life. Your former life, apart from Jesus, wasn't better than your current life with Jesus. So the people of Israel begin to do this. They're romanticizing their former masters, but then you look again at verse 3 and look at what they say next. They turn to Moses and Aaron and they say, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. In other words, they begin to demonize their new master. They're romanticizing the past and they're demonizing the future. In particular, they're demonizing God. Now, yes, we're told that they grumble and complain against Moses and Aaron, but later on we are told in, I believe it's verse 8, that their complaints wasn't ultimately against them but against the Lord. And they're demonizing God in the midst of this adversity. And you think about that. Because what they're charging God with in this moment wasn't, wasn't with being negligent. It wasn't that they felt neglected by God. It was simply that they believed God was being vindictive. They're saying, God, you brought us into the wilderness so that we might die here. They're demonizing the God who's just redeemed them. 
You know, psychologists call this type of thing displacement. Displacement is that dynamic where uh, you begin to lash out at those who are closest to you. Well, here as the people of Israel in the wilderness and God is close to them there, God has not brought them into the wilderness to abandon them or to distance himself from them. He's right there with them. But here in this moment, they're lashing out, out this God. They're, they're demonizing God. And that's what happens when our grumbling and our complaining goes unchecked. This is why grumbling is referred to as being a sin in the scriptures. Because when it is allowed to fester, if it goes unchecked, we start demonizing God. I saw this a lot uh, at different points in my ministry when I've, when I've counseled disciples. And I remember one guy who came to my office several years ago. And he came to my office and he was expressing a good desire. He said, Andrew, I just want to be married. And he expressed this desire, which is noble, which is good. And, and I encouraged his desire. And, and I talked him through that. But you could tell in the midst of that conversation that some grumbling was starting to fester beneath the surface. He left my office. He came back a couple of weeks later. And only this time he didn't come in expressing a noble, good desire. Instead, he came into my office and he began to complain, why hasn't God given me a wife? And his countenance had gotten more stern. And his heart, you could see, began beginning to harden. We talked it through. He left my office, came back a couple of weeks later. Only this time he came in and he wasn't asking any questions. He was convinced that God was against him. He was convinced that God wasn't for him and that God did not want what's best for him. He, his grumbling and complaining, the, lo the longer it was allowed to fester, resulted in, in the demonization of God. And we are all tempted to do this when we encounter adversity. We are all tempted to demonize our God when our grumbling and our complaining is left unchecked. And we do not yet learn to trust in the sufficiency of God. And part of that is because there's this one truth that we need to get a hold of. Part of it is because we don't realize that God uses adversity not to ruin us, but to refine us. Whatever adversity you are facing in your life right now, you have to understand that God does not intend it to ruin you. He intends for it to refine you. This is what Paul is getting after in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, when he makes that statement. For our momentary light affliction, that is our adversity, is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. And I love that word glory because that word's speaking about substance. It's speaking about weightiness. He's saying God is using my afflictions to turn me into a substantial person, a person who can walk through this world with some weight, with some anchorage. And this is how God is using adversity in Paul's life, and it's how he uses it in ours. He uses adversity to make us substantial people. Now, you just, make, you just think about it for a moment. A hypothetical person, I don't believe this person exists in a world like ours, but imagine a person who pops out of the womb and, and is raised to live and experience an entirely charmed life. And they journey through this world facing no resistance, facing no adversity. What type of character, what type of person do you think that will create? Well, I believe it will create a light person, a featherweight person. I believe it's going to create a translucent person, someone who's unable to handle life in a fallen world. They're unable and ill-equipped to sympathize and to empathize with people who are suffering and facing adversity in a world like ours. Without adversity, we become light, translucent people. 
And if we live our lives without facing adversity in some discernible way, avoiding it, escaping it, eventually we're going to become light people. And when the moment comes when adversity does raise in our lives, we're going to be blown away. We're not going to be able to handle it. We're going to crumble. But what you've got to see, according to the way God works in the lives of his people, is that he uses adversity so that that doesn't happen. He uses adversity to bring some weight and substance to our souls, some stability to our lives. The people I look up to most in this world are those who have suffered much. And while they have suffered much, they've maintained faith in the sufficiency of God. The man who invested his life into mine back uh, several years ago now, he, his son, when his son was a young adult, he was working at a convenience store behind the counter, and a guy came in to rob the store. The robbery went sideways, and he ended up shooting my mentor's son, murdering him there on the spot. And that happened just a few months after he lost his wife to a quick battle of cancer. And so you have this man whose faith in Jesus, he's following Jesus through this world, and all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, he loses his son and his wife, but all the while, he's pressing into the Lord. He's not pulling away from the Lord. He's not grumbling and complaining against God, although he is honest with God about, he, about how he feels and what he is wrestling with. He doesn't allow grumbling and complaining to fester. As a result, he responded in that moment with the type of faith that says, my God is enough for me even in the midst of this hell on earth. And, his, and a, an eternal, unbelievable weight of glory began to be hammered out in his soul so that now if you were to meet him, you would experience gravity. If you were to talk with him, you would be drawn to him, listening to the words that he says about his God, listening to his experience of living by faith in a fallen and a broken world where we wander through wildernesses of various stripes. You're going to see a man who is substantial. You're going to see a man who is becoming glorious. This is the way God works in our lives. He uses adversity not to ruin us, but to refine us, to make us substantial people. So if you're in the midst of something that sucks right now, don't start complaining and grumbling against your God. Be honest with him about your feelings, but don't allow grumbling and complaining to fester. Instead, check your grumbling, check your complaining in light of who God is and what God is like. Now you may hear that and you may think, well, does this mean that God is the author of all the terrible things that I go through in this world? And you may have that question. And if that's your question, it's a good question. It's an understandable question. But I would encourage you to think about kind of the blueprint of the Bible. The blueprint of the Bible begins in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And that kind of outlines God's desires and God's intentions for his people. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates the universe. And he declares all of it good. But what's interesting about Genesis chapters 1 and 2 of all the things that are described in those chapters of have, as having been created by God, the one thing you will not see in Eden is the wilderness. You're not going to see wilderness. You're not going to see desert in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Instead, you're going to see that stuff sprouting up outside of Eden. After the fall, after the world was broken, that's when wilderness began to grow. That's when deserts began to come. And so you may think, is God the author of all the terrible things that happen in my life? And I understand the question, but let me encourage you to resist it because there's a better way to think about it. 
And that better way of thinking about it is that your God is big enough and he is kind enough and he is good enough to take all the wildernesses of this world, all the deserts of this world, and bring good things through them, things that would blow your mind. This is why in Isaiah chapter 35, we are told that God will bring streams from the desert Good things from bad. Only a sovereign, good, graceful God can do that. And this is the God we meet in the scriptures. This is the God we engage in Jesus, a God who's capable of using adversities to make us substantial people, to make us glorious people, to make us heavy and weighty people. This is how God works. And when we begin to wrap our minds around those realities, we'll find ourselves able or better able to place our faith in the sufficiency of a God who works in these kinds of ways. But what does it mean to do that? What does it mean to respond with faith in the sufficiency of God? Well, if you look back at Exodus chapter 16, yes, you have the people of Israel are grumbling in the wilderness, but in the midst of the the grumbling, God shows them grace. And he meets them in the wilderness with his grace. And his grace is intended to do some things in their lives that would transform them and change them. Notice verse 4. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. They're complaining about being hungry. They're They're fearful for their lives in the wilderness. And God assures them, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. And he's going to give them bread every day. And he gives them detailed instructions about how to collect this bread and what they should do with this bread. And he's saying, I want you to learn to depend upon me with every step you take in this world. Every day you live, I want you to learn how to depend upon my nourishment. And so God's grace there takes the form of nourishment where he says, look, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to rain bread from heaven. And as the people of Israel would go out and collect this bread, God would say, look, I want you to eat it each day. I don't want you to try to store it up because it doesn't have a long shelf life. That bread's going to expire, and the next day you're going to have to step out of your house, and you're going to have to go and collect more bread. The bread's kind of like produce at Trader Joe's. It just doesn't last very long, and it just kind of goes like that. And so here you've got God instructing his people with this nourishment. But notice there's an interesting thing. Up until this point in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel have been largely passive in their relationship with God. Up to this point, the people of Israel have been redeemed. God has been working on their behalf to redeem them from Egypt. In a sense, they're passive spectators of God's activity. But the moment they leave Egypt and they move into the wilderness, God calls them, hey, look, it's time to stop being passive and it's it's time to be active. And you're going to participate in what I'm going to do in your life. You're going to participate in the nourishment I want to bring your soul. So he says, I'm going to rain down heaven, bread from heaven, and you guys are going to go out every day and collect that food. You're not going to sit passively by. You're going to respond in faith and do what I tell you to do. And so the people of Israel's participation is being ratcheted up in this moment. And the reality is God's grace meets us in the wilderness, meets us in the midst of adversities, but But there is some responsibility that we've got to show to that. There is active participation in the things of God and what he's trying to do in our souls in the midst of adversity. As you consider this manna that fell from heaven, as you move through the Bible, this manna would take on a spiritual component. And it would become kind of uh, figurative for God's word. You get into Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. Listen Listen to what it says there. Referring back to this moment in Exodus 16. 
It says that God humbled Israel by letting them go hungry. Then he gave them manna to eat, which they and their fathers had not known, so that they might learn that man does not live, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see the, it's beginning to take on a spiritual component. And Jesus would quote that verse in Matthew chapter four, referring to this same dynamic, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So when you think about how you respond to adversity in your life, one of the simple ways, one of the simple ways you can respond to your adversity and you can find your faith in the sufficiency of God growing is by taking advantage of the nourishment he provides you in and through his word. And so like Israel, you are to respond to God's activity by taking his word, opening it up, reading his word, consuming his word, praying for God to move his word from your head to your hearts so that it might take an impact nourishing your souls. And you begin to engage the scriptures on a daily basis, finding your faith in the sufficiency of God deepening and deepening and deepening. Another dynamic of this whole nourishment that comes in Exodus chapter 16 is that later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus would refer to himself as this bread. And he would say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not go hungry. If you come to me, I'm gonna nourish your soul. So you respond to your adversity by pressing into Jesus. And you ordinarily do that by pressing into the scriptures. And you begin to allow God to nourish your souls in the midst of whatever you're going through. But not only does God provide nourishment in Exodus 16, you see him also providing relationship. When you get into verse 6, it says, So Moses and Aaron said all of, all of this to the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord. Then you drop down to verse 12, same thing. I'm doing all of this. I'm bringing this bread to you so you may know that I am the Lord your God. I want you to know that I'm for you. I want you to know that I am with you. I want you to know me. And that phrase, to know the Lord, that is a powerful euphemism. It's the same type of language that's used in the Old Testament to describe how a man knows his wife. It's intimacy, it's intensity. This is the type of knowledge that God wants to bring to the people of Israel in the wilderness. Saying, don't allow your adversity to push you away from God. Let your adversity draw you deeper and deeper and deeper into your awareness of God. Because the Lord is not only providing nourishment there, he's providing relationship, he's providing presence. He's wanting Israel to get to the point where they come to him not simply for their needs, but they come to him because he is what they need. He's working in Israel in such a way that they might come to and understand that really they can have everything else, but if they don't have God, they don't have anything. There's a guy by the name of John Newton who wrote a hymn on this dynamic and he's really meditating on on this way God uses adversity. And I wanna share his words with you because I find them helpful. He writes, you know, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. But instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Will you pursue your worm to death? In this way, the Lord replied, 
He said, I answer prayer for grace and faith, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. Could it be that one of the reasons God brings us into adverse circumstances is because he wants us to know him and there's a knowledge of God to be found in the wilderness that can't be found anywhere else. There's a knowledge of God that can only be found in adversity, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering. Could it be that God leads us into adversity to refine us, not to ruin us, to provide relationship with us? But then there's another dynamic here in Exodus 16. Not only does he provide nourishment and relationship, God provides the grace of community. This might surprise you because we're talking about the sufficiency of God. And some of you might think that the sufficiency of God means you can be a lone ranger Christian. That if you've got God, you've got all that you need and you don't need community, you don't need other people. But notice what goes down in Exodus chapter 16. The manna from heaven was to be gathered by individuals, then it was to be shared with the community. All of Israel was in the midst of that adversity. All of Israel was walking through the wilderness. And they weren't to walk through the wilderness by themselves. They were to walk through the wilderness in community because in community, that's where they would see and sense the sufficiency of God. So if you find yourself thinking about the sufficiency of God and God being all you need, that does not mean that you are to become a Lone Ranger Christian, walking detached from community, believing that God is enough for you. God is enough for you in the context of community. And so if you're in the midst of an adverse circumstance, don't allow that adversity to drive you into isolation. Allow that adversity to draw you closer to people. Because you're not the only one who's facing adversity in this world. We all are in various ways. And we can come close to each other and lean upon one another and remind each other of the realities of who our God is. So that together we can believe that God is enough. Together we can believe God is sufficient for us as we journey through a fallen and broken world. You see, the sufficiency of God in this story shows up as in what might be said, his word his presence, and his people. And the sufficiency of God in your life will show up in his word, in his presence, and through his people. So if you're gonna place your faith in the sufficiency of God, those three factors need to be at work in your discipleship. But the thing about Israel's story as they journeyed through the wilderness is that they didn't do a very good job. It took them a long time to kind of get this message. In fact, if you look at verse 4, it says that God, there's a word there. It says that the Lord decides he's going to test Israel to see whether or not they follow his instructions. And when you hear that dynamic, God testing the people of Israel, don't think God tests them like, like a professor would test you. A professor is testing you. Some of them, the bad ones, are testing you to fail you. But God's not testing Israel like a professor. He's testing Israel like a father which is why he would test them in this moment and he would continue to patiently walk with them through the wilderness. So that when you come to the end of the chapter in verse 35, it says the Israelites ate manna for 40 years they did this. 40 years until they came into an inhabited land. They ate manna until they reached the border of the land of Canaan. 40 years, God patiently and lovingly leading them in the midst of their adversities, walking with them, and they did not respond well. In many ways, they failed miserably, not trusting in the sufficiency of God. 
And this kind of set up Israel to, do, to not be able to do what God really wanted Israel to do. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, he wanted Israel to become a light to all nations so that more and more peoples could come to believe that God is sufficient. But Israel themselves had a hard time believing it and they didn't live like it. And as a result, they weren't able to fulfill that mission. But the good news is, many years later, another one would come. And Jesus would step onto the scene in this world and he would actively participate in all that God was doing in his life on a day-to-day basis. And he wasn't tempted for 40 years, but we are told at the beginning of his story that he was tempted for 40 days. And he was tempted in the 40 days after being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to face adversity, to face temptation, to face struggle. And the nature of his temptation concerned food. It concerned bread, didn't it? And yet we're told in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus, though he was tempted in the wilderness, he was tested in the wilderness. We're told that he passed, that he trusted in the sufficiency of his father. This is why when the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread, he responded, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in that moment, Jesus would succeed where Israel failed. This is why we say Jesus is our Savior, because he did for us what Israel could not do for us, and he did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He trusted in the sufficiency of his Father all the days of his life, so that when he later goes to the cross and he experienced the adversity of crucifixion, his death would mean something. And when he would die, he would not stay dead. He would raise back three days later, resurrection. So that those of us who come to him and trust him, we find in Jesus one who's not only our savior, but one who intends to be our satisfier. We look to Jesus and we find salvation and satisfaction. We look to Jesus and we find the grace needed to walk through a fallen and broken world en route to the world that is to come. This is why in our faith family, we rally around Jesus. We lift up Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We point everybody to Jesus. He's not only our savior, he's our satisfier. And if you're in the midst of the wilderness right now experiencing adversity, let me encourage you to fix the eyes of your faith upon Jesus. Let him satisfy your soul in the midst of what you're going through. Press into Jesus and find contentment, find stability. Find composure in a decomposing world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please work these realities into our faith, into our lives, into our hearts, into our souls. I pray, God, that you, your Holy Spirit would come now and counsel us with these truths, that your Holy Spirit would help us to see where application is needed in our hearts, where response is needed in our lives. And, and I pray that you would make us more like Jesus as a result of our time together which is why we pray in his name in this moment. Amen.